Welcome to the Transform Your Teaching Podcast. The Transform Your Teaching Podcast is a service of the Center for Teaching and Learning at Cedarville University in Cedarville, Ohio. We seek to inspire higher education faculty to adopt innovative teaching and learning practices. Thanks for joining our conversation. Welcome to the Transform Your Teaching Podcast. I'm Jared Piles and with me is Dr. Robert McDowell. We both work at the Center for Teaching and Learning here on the campus of Cedarville University. And we are continuing our series on servant teaching. We've had a number of faculty come in and give us their takes on how they would define servant teaching and how they put it into practice. And we are continuing that pattern with our VP of Academics and history professor and six million other hats that I'm sure he wears at some point during the day, Dr. Thomas Mack. Dr. Thomas Mack, welcome. It's great to be here with you, thanks. Yeah. Thanks for agreeing to come on with us. My pleasure. Appreciate that. So what is your role here at the university? I know we already, we, we introduced you, but for those out there that don't know, give us a little quick bio and what you study and how you got to where you're at. Quick bio, graduated from Cedarville back in the 80s. Place had a profound impact on my life. Kind of led to my desire to want to teach at the higher education level. So after grad school and teaching at another institution for a little while, uh, God gave me the opportunity to come back in 2000, teach U.S. history here. I've been doing that ever since. The last few years, I've been privileged to serve as vice president for academics. Is this a good time to ask about that 80 students? Yeah, um, so we're going to go right to it. I was in your first year. I was a student. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, it wasn't that bad. I recall we were in Alfred too, so it wasn't really your oh, fault. Oh yeah, the yeah. back, not even the front of Alfred, the I, back of Alfred. I remember that. The room. back of Alfred. Yeah. yeah. Wow. This giant room, and poor Doctor Mac trying to get students' attention when there's this huge HVAC sound and this. It was a gym, basically. Was, yeah, it was a weird room. It was yeah. really weird. Yeah. With a tech cart and a screen, and that was about it. Um, wow, it got upgraded, because when I was there, it was just a uh, a screen and the uh, transparency, you oh, know, yeah. the, roller, the rolling transparency. Yeah. But I recall you did a couple things that I still remember. Number one, you would have study sessions before an exam where we would go over essay questions, and there was like eight essay questions, right. and you'd, only two or three would show up on the exam. Yep. And we'd make sure, you want to make sure we go through all of them during the study session to prepare us for whatever happened, right? Yeah. Something else you did, maybe I'm misremembering this, but you, we had a paper we had to do. We had to read a book and respond. Did you schedule meetings with every single student one-on-one? Or am I mis- misremembering that? Or was that the other class I took with that you? Was, that was been a different class. Yeah. Really? <laughs> okay. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm... I, Definitely try to be available, but I don't think we scheduled every student uh, during that project. Okay. Yeah. But I think I, I must have met with you during that time because it did have an impact. And we've, we've talked about the how you made the joke about Chillicothe being the first capital of Ohio. And I'm sitting here as a lowly it wasn't freshman. It was joke. It's true. I know. But, you know, you'd say, but hey, what History you... can be funny. <laughs> yeah. And surprisingly, the Chillicothe is the capital, was the first capital Why of Ohio. Why did they do that? I don't know. Probably it's as far as north as they could get at the time. But it's important know. enough to put it on a water tower. No, I appreciate what you're saying. That that was a kind of an interesting room. I didn't think too much of it. I mean, I was just really glad to be here, but uh, it was 
always had a good time in that room. And um, still use the study sheet, study sessions, have one tonight, as a matter of fact. Yep. Do you see a lot of benefit? Do you get feedback from students about that or? About the study sessions? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they appreciate it. There's no question. But, it, you know, it's a two-edged sword. If you have a study sheet and a study session, then your expectations for the exam maybe are a little higher. And Sure. So that, like, opens up to the conversation that, you know, we really want to have is your philosophy of education. Because I think, right, you were doing something, you know, you it was implicit to what you were doing, a study session. And that's the fruit of a way of teaching and the philosophy of teaching. So tell us a little bit more. Can you be a little bit more explicit about your philosophy of teaching? Well, I mean, it's, it's a big question, obviously. I do think we have the privilege in a setting like this to recognize that there's a source of ultimate truth and we want to build all of our courses on that. And so I think that's the starting place for a proper philosophy of education. If you want to narrow it down to, you know, a question like why why do you end up having a study session for a class? Then I think that's that's a product of, you know, teaching a U.S. history survey class. You've got this huge expanse of potential information, right? They're reading a text that's just chock full of, of factoids, and you know, helping one of the biggest challenges students have that aren't necessarily all that enthralled with history is helping them recognize significance versus you know, contextual, contextual material or significant material versus, you know, here's the, the overall storyline. And so I try to give them as many cues as possible about the information that I want them to walk away from. This is the significant information. This is the most important information. And the study sheet is just designed to help them narrow down a big mass of information into material that I think is, is among the more important information that we cover in a class. So I just don't want to be I don't want students to be guessing. I want them to have a pretty good, comfortable sense of this is what's expected of me, and these are the parameters that I need to work from as I study for an exam. So it seems like you want to make sure that that students are prepared, that they understand what you do expect, I think is what you said. Right. How do you think that works for students of today? I mean, does it still, I mean, I know we've talked on this podcast. I think we've had some conversations with some guests and there's definitely this feeling of angst in students, like they're not the same today as they were, you know, like when Jared was in school or when I was in school here, or even, you know, when you were here in the 80s. How does that translate into, at least from your experience, because I know you're still teaching a little bit. Yeah, I definitely think there's been a change um, in student expectations over time. When I was a student, study sheets were pretty rare, pretty wide open. You just kind of try to cram it all in and, you know, I understand that approach too. I'm not necessarily critical of that, but um, I think I've tried to remove some of the ambiguity in that big survey class, especially because there's just so much, so much information that, that we cover. And I think in, in part, um, you know, students having to take a gen ed U.S. history course, they haven't necessarily thought, boy, I walked away from this class feeling really good about this material because they were overwhelmed by it. So I want to put, put that material within some interpretive understanding. There's, you know, there's a cause and effect in American history. There are connections to today. Uh, there are things that matter for them. You know, in answer to that question about the philosophy of education, I would want students to leave my class if at a minimum with an appreciation for why the class mattered, like why they needed to take this class. And then ideally that they're interested in it. Like I was able to 
introduced them to some aspect of the United States history where they thought, wow, this is actually pretty interesting. I wasn't expecting that. If they can walk away with an appreciation for why it matters for them today, then that's success. If we can move to the next level where we'll I actually have some interest in what's going on, that's icing on the cake. This is something I've always wondered. <clears throat> like, I'm my background is language arts, and language arts, nothing really changes. A paragraph is still five sentences, subject verb, needs to have the right agreement and everything else. History, however, is you're constantly adding material in a history course. So, and maybe this is just me not knowing, what is the process that you go through as an instructor or maybe as a department that says, you know, at some point we've got to start trimming stuff to keep the 14 weeks of content that are still comprehensive, but also aren't necessarily skewed a certain direction because events you take out can create a different perspective on history of a nation or something like that. So what's that process look like? Yeah, no, I, I, I appreciate you um, suggesting that history, you know, that that field isn't just static and you don't have, you know, write your lectures once and 30 years later, you're still, you're still golden. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> That's the stereotype, right? Yeah. You have a history class. Uh, well, history uh, doesn't change. History doesn't change. But it's always adding, though. It always is. Right. It's always adding history. Yeah. What the field's always doing is is evaluating understandings of the past. And there are times where new information's, un, you know, uncovered, right? And so that impacts it. But mostly it's just, you know, uh, new perspectives, new uh, new studies. And so it does impact the way we view the past. And the field's methodology is set up so that we're constantly critiquing one another and hopefully moving forward in a positive direction, not say that with a caveat of recognition that much like a lot of higher education today, politics and ideology impacts that. But sure. The goal is that we're pushing each other forward. And so your, you know, textbooks are constantly being rewritten and new information is being added. And so it's a process of deciding, all right, how much can I fit in to this, you know, 16-week semester? And does this new information impact it in such a way? I do want to introduce students to a varieties of interpretation about key events. Like, you know, when we talk about the Cold War, I'm always going to talk about differing schools of thought about that so students understand why that's significant and how historians have viewed it and the political ramifications of those perspectives. Um, but by and large, you know, every historian, like every professor with language arts or whatever, is deciding, all right, what do I think is the most important material for this course and why? And if I can communicate the why to students, then I think it's it's not as important necessarily what I choose to be included versus what's not, but that they understand why what is included was important. It was just bothering me. So thank you for answering that. You know, but also, will, will there be like a U.S. History 3 at some point? Because, you you know, usually it's broken up by years. Right. So, you know, this is a great question. And thank it's you. It's a good thing we don't have a Europeanist or, a, you know, some other type of historian on the show today because... They would remark about what a short period of time a U.S. historian actually covers. It's true. And so there would be no call for a U.S. history three. In fact, they might question why we have a one and a two. Mm. But uh, since they're covering thousands of years and we're covering hundreds, you know. That's but, true. You know, no, we we just shrink coverage of, you know, some area. Well, this isn't a history podcast, although no, I feel no, like it could be. But, not at all. Um, <clears throat> I think our topic is actually servant teaching. Yeah, I believe it is. Yeah. And, one and, on too many and, rabbit trails. And, and back on that. You know, we're currently like like we said. You know, we're in this series, servant teaching. We've we've had some good conversations, Dr. Quentin Schultz, Dr. Hutchison, Mr. L. You know, one of the things we've defined servant teaching is empowering learners by removing barriers, and building on the unique strengths and providing opportunities to succeed. And I kind of see that with what we were talking about earlier. But um, you know, are there other ways of doing this? 
And how do we carefully think about that here at Cedarville, especially given Philippians 2, you know, 1 to 11? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we've been talking about it, honestly. Um, when I think about what I want to accomplish in the classroom, I'm thinking through material that serves the students well. I'm thinking uh, primarily two in two areas. One, how is this uh, course going to prepare them well to be members of this society, citizens? Uh, how does it inform their role as a citizen of this society? How how might it help them understand how our society works, our culture, our political system, our economy? Um, prepare them for involvement in the political system, these sorts of things. But then secondly, I also think it's a great opportunity for us as believers to um, utilize the Word of God and evaluate the events that have taken place in the past. And, you know, as a historian, it's so, it's, you know, so easy, I, I think, about the challenges of integration in some fields, but in the field of history, it's not a challenge at all because ultimately we do judge the past, the events of the past, and, and the, the question for a historian is simply, on what basis are you doing that? And as believers, we have, a, we have a timeless resource to utilize in that process. And frankly, it's part of the reason why the field of history struggles so much today is that it doesn't, it doesn't have a basis for, for evaluating the past. And that basis changes constantly. And, and without a, a solid, absolute source of truth, an authoritative source of truth like we have with Scripture, it becomes just a process of you know the cultural winds impacting that. And so I think I serve my students well or the best when I'm able to encourage them or provide opportunities for them to develop those two those two skills, preparation for a role in society that goes beyond themselves and their family, and preparation for evaluating everything that they encounter in our culture from a biblical perspective. How do you put that into practice? How do you see that on the day-to-day with your instruction and assignments and stuff like that? You know, I generally try to uh, encourage my students to think through whatever it is that we're talking about that day from, from you know, a biblical perspective. So, that might mean uh, bringing in material into a, into a lecture that revolves around the church or some aspect of society that's being um, addressed that day. For example, we just finished the 20s, and you can't talk about the 20s without talking about the Scopes trial, and it's a, it's a tremendously misunderstood moment in American history and just provides a, a wealth of opportunity to talk about what really happened there, what does that mean for the church, how did society view the church at that time. You know, things were changing in the 20s in terms of, of the perspective about the role of the church, and it's important for Christians to understand that and what was happening at that time. But it also manifests itself then in assignments. For example, I ask my students to read primary source documents, and then I write what I call a journal, which is just a short, informal essay about two counter uh, or two opposing viewpoints about some particular event, and I want them to analyze the evidence, but then I also want them to bring some biblical principle to bear on their analysis. And, you know, we kind of break that out early on in the semester, and it's artificial and separate. And by the end of the semester, I'm hoping they're bringing that analysis and and integration sort of process together. And ones that are really picking up on that and doing well, by the time the semester's over, they're they're part and parcel of the same thing. They're not really separate paragraphs in there anymore. It's interesting, though, early on, because students will analyze an argument and say, well, I think this argument won, but I think biblically the other side's right. Mm. And so that gives us an opportunity to talk then about argumentation, talk about what was happening at the time period. Sometimes it just means they're thinking, you know, in categories where they need to blend those categories together. And it's not just about argumentation, it's about source of truth. And so, but other times it is a product of uh, recognizing that that particular piece that we looked at, uh, the argumentation on one side was so weak that it just was overwhelmed by the evidence, but in reality we recognize there's a truth that, that extends beyond what was presented in those two excerpts. Even without using the term servant teacher, which I haven't actually heard him use yet, which is fine. 
you seem to be emphasizing it through how you address your content and what you want the students to get to. So you're thinking about how does it, how should they think about it critically, but also bringing the biblical perspective to bear on it. And then, you know, answering your question, Jared, he, he was really good with showing what he's asking them to do to think about the argumentation. And do you even have sessions during class where you actually set them up to argue? Yeah. Yeah, sometimes. Uh, Normally we're using those assignments to provide a foundation for some small group conversation or a larger class interaction on some particular issue, right? You have a new faculty member who's coming in. Let's say it's Jared. Jared's coming in. He's going to start teaching English. I understand that as VPA, you have a lot of different things that you have to look at. And, but if you were going to explain to him what servant teaching at Cedarville needs to look like with your VPA hat on, how would you answer that question? Yeah, I think um, the temptation that we as professors have, especially over time, is to kind of uh, think that our job is to kind of impart information. The student's job is to take that opportunity, impart information and provide an opportunity for them to learn. It's a student's job for them to take that opportunity and run with it, right? There's an element of that that is true, right? That we can't we can't make students learn. They have to want to take advantage of the opportunities that we're providing to them. But I think servant teaching carries with it the recognition that as a professor, as a teacher, we do have an obligation to um, help our students understand why what we're doing matters. If they lack the motivation, to try to encourage that motivation in the process of communicating that. Part of the reason why I'm so keyed in in the survey class and trying to make material interesting is I think students learn best when they're interested in what they're doing, right? If, they're, they're, if they've got a commitment to it, I see a connection between this and their life, whatever, or they just have an innate interest in it, they're going to they're gonna spend more time on it. So if I can generate that interest, then their motivation level rises. And I do think I have some responsibility to encourage that sense of motivation and discipline for the course. I can't control it. I realize that. At the end of the day, students got to make a decision. But I don't think it's just, I've given you the opportunity, I'm done. I think servant teaching carries with the recognition that that I have a role in helping them understand both why it's important and to motivate them in the pursuit of, of learning. And um, to me, that defines it. Now, in the same way that we talk about servant leadership, servant teaching, we recognize that there is an authority structure, right? So I am in a position of authority over them as a professor, and and sometimes that can be perceived by a student as creating a gap. I don't think that gap has to disappear. I am in a position of authority. I am ultimately going to assign a grade to them, but I can demonstrate to them that I care about their success. And yes, as many people have written about that relational aspect in the classroom matters, they know that I am giving them not only an opportunity to learn, but I care that they do learn. I think that makes a huge difference. Mm -hmm. And frankly, that was a huge part of the difference that was made in my life when I interacted with professors here as a student. I think that, uh, at least for me, that it's always the question, uh, what does servant teaching look like? And it's really good to hear that from you and how it's impacted you. I think Jared and I both have those same kind of stories of being here and and we've seen the patterns. So a concern through content, making sure that we get it. But more than that, you know, there's also this, there's this impetus by faculty. I, I would say a large majority of faculty here at Cedarville to be more to the student than just a content deliverer. Yeah, no question. And I, I see it every day. 
Yeah, and it's something that I look for in the interviews that, that I get to participate in when we're looking uh, to hire uh, prospective candidates for faculty slots. But I get to see it every day with the faculty that we have here and the extra lengths that they go to to reach out to students uh, to make sure that they have every opportunity to be successful in the courses that they're, they're taking here. We recognize that, that, that you know, students are human beings outside the classroom, right? And lots of things affect their ability to be successful within the classroom. And we, we have people here, both faculty and staff, that care about them um, as individuals and care about their spiritual uh, maturity and their spiritual walk. And all that then plays into that relationship that's necessary, I think, for education to that educational process to work well. You talk about motivation with your survey students, yeah. but you also teach higher level history courses. Is there a different level of motivation there? There generally is, just because they're already interested in history. And so um, I, I don't think I have to, to think about how do I motivate them well in this class. I always do a survey before both survey and upper level. What are you interested in? What, what area of this time period that we're looking at do you want to make, do you really hope we're going to cover? So then to answer your question earlier about how do you evaluate the information, especially as it grows to what you include in your course, then I use that and I can modify the course, you know, throughout the semester and spend more time in an area where students have identified a particular interest. Like my survey students is here for, for whatever reason, this, they were big on Reagan. Like Reagan, mm. we're, we're kind of past that, that um, curve on students having any sort of connection to Reagan at all, you know, because we... <laughs> yeah, it's true. They're all born, you know, post, post-Reagan era. So I went through a period of time in my career where, you know, they were all interested in them. Now it's waned, and now I guess it might be coming back. So I've kind of changed the end of my course to make sure that we spend some time going through um, the Reagan administration, which we wouldn't always spend that much time there in the survey just because of the amount of topics we have to cover. So it's, you know, it is interesting to see that ebb and flow. And I do, um, with the upper levels, same same scenario. I want to give them the opportunity or afford them the opportunity to focus on something they're interested in. Usually there, I'm going to do it in an assignment that I'm going to let their, let them, you know, peel off and focus in on something from a book review or a research project. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Thomas Mack, for your time today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. We appreciate that. Thank you for your insights on servant teaching. Now, I want you to be sensitive to our time and, uh, in one, in one minute, I'm going to put a timer up here. I want you I'm to... I'm watching. Uh, all right. Was the Revolutionary War really revolutionary? And we'll start the timer whenever you whenever you start. Five so. paragraphs, please. Five paragraphs. And yeah, I need three points. Sorry, I'm not sure. GPT. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I mean, it wasn't. I think the revolution occurred before the Revolutionary War took place. I think the Revolutionary War was all about maintaining the revolution that had already incurred in colonial society. Is that a short enough answer for you? You left plenty of time on the clock Yeah, no, that and he left it hanging. Because <laughs> the question you're wanting to know was, ooh, what was going on in society? Well, if he was back in 2004, I could have told you, but I don't remember at yeah. this point. Cause well, I, they, they just developed an independent society. They were separate from Britain in almost every way, culturally, economically, politically, ideologically, and so... So is Hamilton accurate then, or? Oh, no. I've only made it through two-thirds of Hamilton. I'm sorry. <laughs> it just got so long. I had you saw the best bailed, parts. It yeah. was fine. Well, Dr. Thomas Mack, thank you for joining us today thank on you. our podcast, talking about servant teaching. Join us next time as we wrap up our series on servant teaching. Thanks for listening. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Transform Your Teaching podcast. Please subscribe or follow us on your preferred podcast platform. For more information, you can email us at ctlpodcast at cedarville.edu. 
please consider subscribing to our blog, Focus, found at cedarville.edu forward slash focus blog.